have a dream that all men are created equal. Have you ever had the situation where you just know that somebody is significant? Yeah, we'll call it significant. Maybe famous, maybe wealthy, maybe well-known, but significant. They have a certain air about them, don't they? I've had this happen to me several times over the years, particularly working in the film industry. You can't help but bump into people who are somewhat successful and famous. Had one of these situations just recently where somebody turned up and I went, hello, I think we've got something here. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Ian Kath, and this is episode 46. Just quickly, we've got a little corker of a show today, and over at the site, which is, of course, yourstorypodcast.com, you can find heaps of links. Go and check them out. I didn't actually know a great deal about this gentleman before we got into the show. I actually like to do it that way. I like it to be fresh and not know too much. But when I was editing it, I started crawling around, and there is a stack of information and if you want to check out some of that i've got a whole heap of links over on the site and you can go and see the background about what this is all about and like i said the site is over at yourstorypodcast.com leave a comment send me an email chat at yourstorypodcast.com i love to hear from you it's always wonderful and also over there on the facebook fan page we've got that too haven't we share it around folks i love doing this so i'd love you to share it around with everybody the more people who know about it the more people who maybe post a comment over on itunes hey there's a suggestion for you the more people find out about it and more it works and if it works well you know this thing can grow in some way which i'm still curious to know how it's going to grow but we'll see the music of course and i've got to give them a plug the lovely people at iodo promo net they give us the music that enables me to put it on there and if you like it go and check it out maybe consider buying it it's all good and it shares the love around as i like to say As you know, I do a bit of work in the real world from time to time, and sometimes it's in the film industry. Well, lately I've been down on the Gold Coast here in Queensland, down at the Warner Roadshow Studios, where the latest of the Narnia films are being made. I normally work in special effects or props. I I make stuff. That's my background. I'm a maker of things. So early one Monday morning, I was there talking to my supervisor, Peter, just chatting, you know, the usual sort of stuff about the weekend and what we're going to get up to that week. When this mature fellow with a well-trimmed graying beard and a captain's cap salted up to us and cheery sort of way stopped to talk to Pete for a little while and he was just chatting and I sort of made my leave and shot through a little bit later I spoke to Pete and I said who was that fellow you know it was one of those situations I just described where you know there's he's somebody significant Pete mentioned to me that he was the executive producer of the film and he's some way related to C.S. Lewis clang the bells went off and I thought it might have a story here But as it turns out, so do a lot of other people. Growing up with C.S. Lewis as a stepfather and with Joy Davidman as a mother and so on and William Lindsay Gresham as a father strikes a lot of people in the literary world as being rather exceptional. But the only living human being who really knew Jack well was me. Certainly, you know, it's something I value Narnia and everything it means very, very highly. Why is that? I grew up with it, I guess. And now, after all of these years, it's finally happening, and the series of the Narnia stories are becoming films. Do you enjoy filmmaking? Parts of it I enjoy very much, parts of it I don't. Um, I am sort of responsible for every facet of the movie, in some way or another. We did a particular set which takes place in a kind of forest glade. Uh, It was built on a soundstage, and it was absolutely perfect. I saw it. It's just unreal. It's so so real as to be unreal. Nobody outside of this industry has any idea of the amount of work and it, effort that goes into putting it is extraordinary together. isn't it i mean it's like running a fairly major military operation yeah. and undoubtedly having c.s lewis as a stepfather christianity would have to be a major part of doug's life and what that means to him it means that i have 
committed my life to Jesus Christ's teachings, to him as, as an individual and, and to his teachings, and have decided to try to do things his way, and to do what he would have me do, whatever that may be. If you do pour your bread upon the waters, as the Bible tells us, it comes back a hundredfold, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a proven, hundred, hundredfold. Well, let's get into it. Here's Doug's story. 28th of October. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to your story. I'm on the Warner's Roadshow lot at the moment. Uh, There's a movie going on here. They're they're doing another movie in the Narnia series. And I'm really lucky to have the executive producer of the film, one Doug Gresham. Welcome. Welcome to your story. And I'm really keen. We don't know each other, as I've just explained to you (laughs) off mic. My supervisor was talking to you, and he mentioned a couple of things about you, and I thought, hello, there's got to be something here. <laughs> so that's why I rang you up and asked you to come on the show. Sure. So what are you doing in Australia, first of all? Well, as you said, I'm the executive producer of this movie, uh, but I have spent 26 years of my life in Australia. It's, it's probably more my home than anywhere else in the world. Uh, my three sons live here with our 10 grandchildren. Right. So I come out to Australia quite often, but it's just... As it happens, we're shooting this one here. We weren't originally intending to. It was originally going to be Mexico, wasn't it? Originally, it was going to be Malta, oh, which is it? actually where I live at the moment. But that, that wasn't necessarily why. But everything we need in terms of locations and, uh, and so forth is in Malta. But unfortunately, we had it all set up. And then, of course, the euro value rose and the dollar went down with a thump. And it became just completely uneconomic to film it there. So we, we then looked at Mexico. And the facilities in Mexico, one of the things they have in Malta, which is very good, and they also have Mexico, is a huge horizon filming tank. We could have put the whole ship in the tank and manipulated it in either of those places, which we can't do here, of course. But, um, you know, when body parts start washing up on the nearby beaches, you start to worry about security. Real body parts? Yeah, bits of people. Yeah. I mean, they have a sort of criminal civil war thing going on out there. Uh, I think it's probably still going on. And it was just a situation where we realised we could not secure the safety of our people there at all, so... We thought this is uh, not quite a good idea. So then we looked for somewhere in the world where the currency was was worth considerably less than the US dollar, because we're funded in US dollars. And Australia came up, and Australia has a tank here at the studios. We've got a tank. It's not huge, but it's it's good enough and big enough to do the job. And um, the currency at that time was much uh, lower than it is now. So this became the right place to come, and okay. it's turned out to be fabulous, actually. The crews have been great, so it's, yeah. it's, and the facility is very good also. The studios are terrific. Everything we need is here. So, Yeah, I've worked uh, both here and down in Sydney, and I've worked here a lot over the last 20, oh, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. and this is the first time I've seen these studios look like a major production studio. Yeah, well, that, that was helped by the, the sort of rise in currencies elsewhere, or, the, or if you like, the lowering of the Australian value currency, uh, currency value. Because if you're, if you're funded in, in um, overseas currencies, which you can then exchange at a, a, a good rate in Australia, you get more bang for your buck, as they say. Yeah. So you're here doing the movie. Is that what you do? Is that your background? Is, is that what background? You're, is that what you're into? Is, is executive <laughs> producing films, filmmaking? Um, is that your field these days? Or? It's, it's a large part of what I do these days. I'm um, the creative and artistic director of the C.S. Lewis Company which is the company that owns the copyrights and so forth. And your involvement with Mr. Lewis? He was my stepfather. So uh, when we founded the C.S. Lewis Company, uh, I was the sort of creative mind. And we have uh, other people who handle things like money and legal things and so forth. Uh, but, yeah, I, so that was my job. And we decided about... Uh, well, I've always, all my life, I've been trying to get these movies made since I was a teenager, practically. I've always wanted to. And I've been working on these projects for about 20 or 30 years, I guess. Up until today. So, are you the um, the force behind getting these films produced? Yes. Right. It was a sim- simple answer. Yes. Yeah, it was yeah. my idea. Well, we somebody's got to push it, haven't they? Somebody has to do it. Yeah, yeah. It was just a job that fell to me. I inherited a moral responsibility to look after Jack's works, and to I felt to make films out of them which still carried all the important messages Jack was trying to tell us in these books, and were yet delightful movies. And I think so far we've done very well. Sort of continuing family heritage so to speak yeah i guess so certainly you know it's something i've i value narnia and everything it means very very highly why is that i grew up with it i guess i grew up with the narnian stories i love the man who wrote them i love the stories themselves just for the stories or for well, the deeper meanings there are deeper meanings in the stories there are such valuable things in the stories for example in today's world we've kind of i suppose in the 20th century we sort of threw away all the great 
philosophical and moral, moral concepts of the 19th century, sort of thinking they were out of date. Things like courage, personal responsibility, personal commitment, uh, duty, honour, chivalry, all of those sorts of things. Threw them off, and they don't need those anymore. And of course, the result has been that our civilizations are crumbling around as fast as we can talk about it. And we need to get those things back. And these movies teach just well, the books, of course, teach just that. And so do the movies. There are important messages to be embedded right throughout the Narnian Chronicles. Is it just aimed at kids, do you think? No, not at all. It's aimed at everyone who, who likes to read, everyone who likes fantasies, everyone who likes uh, exciting stories. But can they do the transition between reading a fantasy and incorporating that illustrative, messages? Illustrative you know? fantasy has been one of the best teaching modes since Jesus started talking in parables. Sure. It still is one of the best teaching modes. So yes, of course they can make the transition. Sure. It's the simplest way to understand things very often. These movies, how, how well are they sticking to the originals, the books? Well, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was very close to the original book because the book was written in such a way that lent itself to being transcribed into the film medium. Prince Caspian, we had to make some fairly major changes because the book isn't written that way. In this movie, there are a lot of differences in it also to, as Hollywood says, drive the plot and so on. I'm uh, ambivalent about whether they're necessary or not. I don't really think so. But... Uh, that's how they wanted to do it, and uh, it was either that or not make a movie, so I said, well, go ahead and do it, you know. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see the public's reactions. In order to get into the filmmaking process, have you always been running the C.S. Lewis Company? Or is this well, no, that's something that started about 30 years ago. Um, well, for you, that's a long time, I suppose. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fair age, too, old fella. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I um, no, I've... Hmm... It's a long, long story, so, really. Well, your accent, for starters, is It's confusing. like my Christianity. It's non-denominational. Yeah, OK. Um, well, I don't know about your Christianity, but your accent definitely is. My, my Christianity is definitely non-denominational also. I was born in New York, brought up the first eight years of my life in, in upstate New York, lovely part of the world. I was then taken to England when my mother and father divorced and um, lived in London for a couple of years, but I spent my childhood in England till I was 18. Until I was 21, actually. Um, is this when you became stepson to C.S. Lewis? Yeah, my, my mother and Jack got married. She married Jack. Well, Jack married her, actually, when she was on her deathbed. Oh. She was dying. And uh, she went into remission, which lasted four years through a direct, direct intervention of the Holy Spirit of God. And those two people had the happiest four years of either of their lives in that time. And then, of course, she did die. And uh, that story is told in the movie Shadowlands, to which I was a consultant. Well, I was a consultant of the whole project from its first inception as a TV uh, film through its stage play years and then of course in, in the Dick Attenborough movie but that was my first introduction or hands on introduction to filmmaking and I sort of thought it was just an interesting mm. interesting exercise and then uh, so we were, well, by that time I'd always wanted to make the, the Narnian Chronicles into fine films and eventually that started to happen and we, we had long sort of periods of waiting for people to do it and quite frankly I think that the Holy Spirit of God held up the movies until such time as the technology existed to do them justice. Yeah, and they need serious technology oh, too, yes. don't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. One of the things that makes them so expensive, I'm afraid. Well, that's right, but fantasy films are coming of age because of the technology. Yeah, that's very you know, true. Everything from that's Star Wars all the way through. You know? Yeah, that's very true. What's the Malta connection? Well, the Malta connection is, is rather interesting, I suppose. We lived in Tasmania for a while when we first emigrated. We emigrated from England. My wife and I got married in England. Emigrated to Tasmania in 1967 farmed for a short while there. I got into broadcasting. We eventually wound up towing a car and a caravan and three kids across the, the country to Perth, where I continued my broadcasting career. And I was doing that for, I suppose, 15 years or more, full-time. can't remember exactly how long off the top of my head. And then uh, decided that our children were growing up in a, an environment we didn't really think was very good for them, too much urban environment and so forth. So we decided, I, I, and I was thoroughly sick of broadcasting by then, so I resigned from the ABC and uh, we went back to Tasmania and bought farms again, went farming. And in fact, people have often asked me what it made me ever give up the glorious and glamorous job of broadcasting, television and radio work, to go back to dairy farming. I always tell them, well, I thought I might as well shovel cow shit as bullshit, it's probably cleaner. <laughs> so we went back to dairy farm and raised all our kids on the farm. And having both of us committed our lives to Christ and to his service, he made it evident that he had work for us on the other side of the planet. So we prayed an awful lot about where to go and what to do, and we wound up eventually in Ireland buying a mansion at a time when you couldn't give away a big house in Ireland. They were so uh, expensive to run and very cheap to buy. And so we bought this mansion and asked the Lord what we were supposed to do. I mean, we only had two kids living at home at that stage, our two daughters. And uh, he told us to get the house ready, and I had no idea what to get it ready for what, but 
So we renovated it. We, we gutted it and rebuilt it completely from the ground up. Spent a fortune, I suppose. Spent a fortune. Yeah. And then that, the result of that was that it became a psychotherapy and counselling ministry worldwide, of worldwide renown. And people came from all over the planet to come and see us and stay with us and is, is have help still, of one sort or another. Still operating, sorry? No, no, we closed down. We, about, uh, we did that for 13 years nonstop. Um, my wife and I ran the place with the help of a very fine young man called Mark McDonald, who was our groundsman, mechanic, and everything else man. And he did a wonderful job and became a good friend. Then we, uh, we became evident that the Lord wanted us to wind it down and it had its, uh, its time. Well, there was time for all things in, the, in this life. And by that time, I was already involved in making Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and moving on towards making Prince Caspian, which, of course, led to making this one. So my wife was shouldering most of the burdens. And we'd lived in Ireland for 13 years and only had three summers. I don't know if you know much about the weather in Ireland, but it rains most of the time. Does it? I just uh, noticed that when you said Ireland, then you actually l- dropped into an Irish... Well, you sort of can't, can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite funny because you've got this confusing accent anyway. Yeah, well, of course, all being an actor Irish in my up. past, the acting comes out as well. It's quite fun. But um, so anyway, we, we, we decided we would sell the place. And um, we had already got kept a boat. We had a boat we'd renovated, an old steel yacht that I completely refitted in Tasmania. And we used to sail up and down this coast all the time. Had a lot, spent a lot of time in the Sundays. had it berthed at Able Point Marina for a while, and then moved over to Hamilton Island. Great times, actually, wonderful times. And uh, so a friend of mine, John Sanders, sailed that over to, uh, to the Med for us. But we decided that you know, the best place to keep it in the Mediterranean would probably be right in the middle of the, of the Med, so we ain't got time to cruise. We could go to anywhere mm. in the Mediterranean. Nowhere is more than about four or five days cruising away from, from Malta. And so um, we kept her at Malta, and we would fly over and have a holiday and fly home and fly over and fly home and so on. So when it finally became time to move out of Ireland, which is a cloudy, misty, dark, dank, wet sort of place, I mean, even the cars parked outside used to get moss growing on them very quickly and stuff like that. Goodness. But uh, we decided to go somewhere where the sun shines occasionally. We'd already, we knew Malta pretty well, but then had friends there and, and liked the place. So we bought a place in Malta and moved there. Um, so that's the Malta connection. It's really rather simple. Um, and is that that's still home base? Not well, we're, yeah, we still live in Malta. My wife's just gone back there. She was here for six weeks, but she went back there the other day and is running the fort at home, as it were, while I'm out here looking at making movies and watching mm. how it happens and watching what's going on. Uh, so that's how Malta came into the picture. Uh, but when we sold up the uh, the place in Ireland, the house in Ireland that we'd renovated, the guy's deposit check put me in profit. Oh, right. Well so done. that includes the cost of renovating the place and all. So. Wow. Um if you do, I mean, we ran this ministry for 13 years. We had between two and 500 guests a year stay in the ministry. We never charged anybody for our ministry services at all. And um, if you do pour your bread upon the waters, as the Bible tells us, it comes back a hundredfold, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a hundred, hundred, you know. hundredfold too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well done. So uh, it was uh, quite an interesting exercise. What's the lifestyle like in Malta? I don't know anything about that place. Well, Malta's just a very large limestone rock sticking out of the sea. Um, it has a thin but but rich topsoil, which is the result probably of millions of years of upper-level dust from the Sahara Desert descending on Malta. Things grow very quickly and very well there, vegetables and so We grow all our own vegetables. We've been self-sufficient since we first started farming in terms of veggies and so forth. Uh, we have a big vegetable garden. It's, um, we have to irrigate everything, of course. It's very hot in the summer and about like it is here. In, in The summer weather here is similar to our winter weather in a way. It gets a little bit cooler, I think, probably in in Malta than it does here, but it rains a lot and you get a lot of high winds, right. which is similar. And it's, the culture? The culture is such a mixture, it's, it's a bit like my accent, actually. <laughs> uh, Malta has been conquered throughout this, the millennia by just about everybody around the Mediterranean. Uh, the, the Phoenicians conquered at one stage, the um, uh, Hannibal's people, the, uh, what were they called, I've forgotten now. Uh, the Romans conquered, the Greeks have conquered, the Persians have conquered, the Ottoman Turks tried and were beaten back by the Maltese. All sorts of civilizations have based themselves in Malta at some stage or another. Eventually, of course, the French conquered under Napoleon, and um, they were so unpleasant that the Maltese people eventually rose up against them and massacred the entire garrison, and invited Admiral Lord Nelson of the British fleet to come in and take the place over which they did, and the British were there ever since until the 1970s, I think 1970 perhaps, or a bit later, the British left. Um, but it's now a member of the EU, and it's, it's a nice place to live, very densely populated. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's a good place. The most famous person I know from there is Edward de Bono. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he, he's well-known worldwide for his lateral thinking. That's Some, right. Something that I did by instinct from the time I was a child, I think, and a lot of people do. Yeah. An interesting man. Funnily enough, I own one of his ex-houses. Oh, really? Mm. You said you wrote an autobiography. Yeah, I was asked to do so. Um, 
growing up with C.S. Lewis as a stepfather and with Joy Davidman as a mother and so on, and William Lindsay Gresham as a father, strikes a lot of people in the literary world as being rather exceptional. So I was asked to record on video um, my reminiscences, my memoirs. And when that finished, the guy who's responsible for it said, listen, Doug, this is a fabulous story. You just have to write it as a book. And I said, one of them was a historian. I said, look, you're the historian. You write it, because I wasn't particularly keen. He said, no, it's your story. You have to write it. So I wound up spending about four or five years cobbling this thing together. And it's published under the name of Lenten Lands, which is a, a, a word or phrase rather taken from my mother's epitaph that my stepfather wrote for her. And um, it goes, it, it tells the story of my life up till 1973. And uh, I think it, it's still in print in English, and I think it's still in print in Spanish, and I've got a feeling it's probably still in print in Chinese, I'm not sure. So when did you write it? To tell you the truth, I don't really remember, well, but, but about 1988 or something. I think oh, okay. okay. A long time ago now, um, quite a while back. And it's been in print a long time, still still selling a little bit, I suppose. Must be or they wouldn't keep it in print. Yeah, well, for sure. But um, And then later I wrote a biography. Again, I was asked to write a biography of Jack for, for young people. Jack being my stepfather's yes. name, C.S. Lewis. Yes. And so I wrote this thing, and uh, it's quite fascinating. So it went on the market in America, an American publisher put it out, without mentioning that it was supposed to be for children. So, although I do mention it, I think, in the introduction. So a lot of reviewers wrote, wrote things like, I don't understand Mr. Gresham's attitude here. It's almost as if he were writing for children. <laughs> Funny that. It makes me worry a little bit about the educational standards in America today. I mean, it's fairly obvious that I would, I would have thought that this book was for people from about the age of 8 to about the age of 80, but mostly concentrating on the preteen and teen years. But that just went straight over there. You know. mm. Do you enjoy filmmaking? Parts of it I enjoy very much, parts of it I don't. Um, I, I like being on the ground here in the studios and doing this kind of stuff and watching it happen and watching it all come together and, and work and seeing the images appear on the screen and so on. Um, I don't particularly like doing the business side of things, mm. which I'm heavily involved with as well. What's, but, yeah, it's, what's, it's, the, what's the job of an executive producer? Well, I, I don't think I have the, a job. I mean, there is no other credit for what I do. I think probably most executive producers throw a fistful of money at the project and get you know, credit on the screen. Um, I am sort of responsible for every facet of the movie in some way or another. Uh, I'm involved in, this, in the writing of the screenplay as a, as a consultant on that. I'm involved in merchandise that goes with the movie. I'm involved in checking that everything stays Narnian. I'm involved with any games that are made from the movie, all of that sort of thing, publicity, marketing and so forth. Um, I've overseen all of that on the last two. And uh, also, of course, the actual filming itself to make sure things don't, uh, errors don't crop up, which occasionally do. Um, so uh, basically, I'm involved in every level of the thing. So, so did you have? It's really my project. Yeah, well, that's what I'm starting to realise. It's, yeah. it's almost as though you're the um, you're the creative pointy end of this ship. Yeah, you could say, <laughs> could say that, I guess. Um, it, it is. It is kind of. Well, actually, Mark Johnson coined a phrase or used a phrase which described it very well. We were in uh, the Czech Republic in Prague doing a sequence in the first movie and the, the American ambassador to the Czech Republic came to visit the sets. Mark was showing him around and he introduced him to me and the guy said, well, what does Mr. Gresham do for the project? And Mark said, oh, he's to blame. Wonderful. And that about sums it up, really, I guess. Wonderful. The buck stops somewhere. The buck stops somewhere, yeah. I guess it stops with me. Yeah. What do, what do you like about the... On a lot of people listening to this haven't actually ever been on a, a film lot or know anything about the film industry. What do you like about hanging out around here? Well, one of the best things about here in particular, it's been the case on all of our shoots, actually, all of our, our films, but is the people. Uh, the people, I mean, I've never met anyone on any of our locations or sets that I haven't liked. It's been a wonderful experience. I, I mean, an awful lot of great people work in the film industry. At this end of it, you know, the, the nuts and bolts end where things happen. Um, I think there are probably a lot of people at the other end, the top end, if you like, or the, depending on which way you look at the project, um, of the industry who aren't so pleasant. But, but everybody I've met on, on this, uh, this level has been great. Mm. It's wonderful to work with the people, and I enjoy it enormously. Um, I also enjoy seeing astonishing technology put to beautiful uses. And, in fact, the fact, the fact is also pretty important to me that we, as a, as a unit, I suppose, we in this sense, meaning myself, Mark Johnson and a few others, responsible for these movies, are always pushing the technological envelope further and further with each movie we make. Uh, we're sort of always pioneering. For example, we're shooting this film in, totally in digital, and I don't think anybody's ever done a film of this size or scope before, in, in, in digital, completely in digital. It has huge advantages and a few disadvantages, but I mean, it's, in, it's an adventure to do it this way. Um, the great people you meet, the creative people you meet are always fascinating, as I said. 
but also the technology itself is fascinating and to watch it being pushed to its very limits and then a little bit further develop a bit more each time is wonderful, mm. it's wonderful. Yeah. It's quite exciting push it till it breaks and then and back then off it. a bit no don't back off <laughs> yeah. find out a way of doing and what broke it, it without breaking it yeah. you know? yeah. fix yeah. it and go on ahead and and that i mean if we tried to shoot the lion the witch and the wardrobe in as little as as little as a year before we did it would have been impossible to produce that lion on screen the way we did and have him be hugely majestic and dignified and mm. so forth very very difficult to do and expensive too of course mm. Mm, and and he looked magnificent. He still does. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Your um, your faith is very strong by the sounds of it. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, it well, depends you, whom you're comparing it to. Well, you've mentioned it several times in this very Yeah, short I mean, I'm chat. a Christian. I'm a committed Christian. Yeah. Um, whether but, but, my faith is very strong is always a moot point. Well, well, what does that mean? What does what mean? What, is it, what does your faith mean to you? Um, it means that I have committed my life to Jesus Christ's teachings, to him as, as an individual and, and to his teachings and have decided to try to do things his way and to do what he would have me do, whatever that may be. Okay. Um, because it works. Hmm. Okay. I mean, Christianity is something a lot of people don't understand. Christianity is not a matter of going to church and polishing a pew with your backside every Sunday. It's what you do every day in your everyday life. Um, it's the charity you, you display in your relationships with people, even your nearest and dearest. Christianity is a matter not merely of faith or belief. It's a matter of behavior. And I think that gets lost often along the way. That doesn't mean obeying a whole bunch of rules. It means living life in a particular fashion. The fashion is exactly what Jesus told us to do in the Gospels, when he was here walking around as a human being, uh, living with him present in our lives uh, all the time, and therefore behaving in a way that we know he would appreciate. In a day-to-day practical sense, how do you do that? <laughs> with, yeah, I mean, great, I mean, with, great, with great difficulty yeah, very you, often. You personally, have you got um, examples? Yeah. Yeah, with me, me personally. I think probably it starts with getting up in the morning and the first person you meet, you treat as someone who deserves your respect. And if they have any problems, you do the best you can to help them. You'll, you'll always be cheerful and kind and charitable to everyone you meet. And when I say charitable, I don't mean handing out money, mm. though that can be a part of it. Um, when someone tells you a story about someone else and, and says they're a rotten person because they did so and so, always look for the very finest way of explaining their behavioral pattern you can find. And um, if they have something, some problem, try to help them with it. It's just, I think it's an attitude thing more than anything else. Another way of summing it up is a Christian is someone who's made his life something to be taken advantage of by other people. Wow. Well, well, it's, just, uh, it's, it's very difficult to describe a Christian life without slipping into church jargon. And as soon as you do that, everybody's hair curls and they want to go someplace else. And because most of it is hypocritical anyway. But I think it's uh, trying to be the best person you can be all the time, irrespective of the conditions you're encountering, because that's what Jesus wants us to do. I think it's a good thing, too. I completely agree with you, and I come from a different place. But I think yeah, that's the essence of good behavior. Uh, the, the, the one, way, one place that Christianity goes a little bit further is because God himself created us, and because he wants us to step aside from the animal kingdom, of which we're members, of course, and to be something different. And because we messed it up and still mess it up, he came here himself to actually pay the penalty for everything I've ever done, which I shouldn't have done, and for all the things I should have done and I haven't done, so that I wouldn't have to pay the penalty. And I, people talk about going to hell and burning in the lake of fire. I don't know what hell's going to be like. I don't know if, if hell as a place exists or if it's simply a condition. But whatever it is, I don't want to go there and be there. I don't want to be in that condition. So, um, and the only way out of that, of course, is to allow to accept the gift that Jesus has given us of his death to pay my penalties. Hmm. That's, that's succinct. Well, I hope so. I'll yeah. try to be as succinct yeah, no, as possible. No, no, that works. That works. I understand. I understand it works for clearly. me. But also it works, as I just pointed out, with the casting of bread upon the waters, it comes back a hundredfold. When you put into practice the things that Jesus told us to do, it works. Primarily, first and foremost, I guess I'm a Christian because it works. I mean, it's a fine way of living. Hmm. Uh, it makes life a lot happier, but it works. Mm. And it's functional. And nothing else much does. I mean, mm. I've tried a lot of other stuff first. How much longer are you, off? Are you, um, are you going to be here? Probably be here. I think I leave uh, Australia on the 30th of November. Now, where does the film go then? Well, the post-production is going to be done in London, and I guess I'll be commuting from Malta to London for oh, okay. a year or whatever it takes. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people don't realise quite how involved the post-production process is in these movies, but... We have so much computer-generated stuff to do and so much um, 
basically computer work to change images and to put things in and take things out that shouldn't be there and so on. Uh, that post-production will take considerably longer than the principal photography mm. on this film. A lot of people don't realise that even when it's a fully finished, closed set with everything there, they still... We still put pieces in and take still, pieces. Yeah, that's right. There's still <laughs> pixels manipulated, I mean, isn't we've there? Got, we've got creatures and, and characters whom we cannot film on set, like Reaper Cheap, who is a two-foot-high mouse, for example, one of our heroes, as it happens. We will shoot entire sequences in this film with the actors playing to an imaginary character represented by a point of space with a tennis ball in it, on the end of a stick or something, you know. It's very difficult for the actors. Fortunately, our people have been great at doing it. But um, And then afterwards, in the post-production process, all the imagery is put in to a set that was thought to have been perfect beforehand, but we need another character who isn't there. Mm, mm. And all, all of a sudden things get in the way, maybe. Exactly, and there are things that have to be moved and, and so on. Um, and we've got great people doing that work too, and wonderful people. But it, it is kind of interesting to see a, a set built with incredible beauty and detail. And uh, a set, The sets built on this particular movie have been breathtakingly good, I have to tell you. Crews here have been fabulous. And we did a set, um, I'm going to try and tell us without giving too much away, we did a particular set which takes place in a kind of forest glade. And it was built on a soundstage. And it was absolutely perfect. I saw it. You saw it? I saw and it. you saw the banquet? No, no, I missed the banquet. I saw it the day after it was, when I was... It's just unreal. It's so be- I mean, it's so, so real to be, uh, as to be unreal in the metaphoric sense. That's right. I, I, and, of course, there's a character who goes right through that sequence who isn't there. Oh, wow. You know, like Reaper Cheap. The, yeah. Actually, I don't know. In this, I'm not sure Reaper Cheap is there in that one. But anyway, the point being that there are things that happen which are utterly magical in Narnia. So here we have to make them happen by science. And by the way, the only difference between science and magic is that science is what we pretend we understand. Magic is what we freely confess we don't. And maybe one day magic is explained by science Often anyway. it is. Often That's it right. is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I remember the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. There, <laughs> yeah. The match sequence in that. Witchy was... well, I saw it done. Witchy well, I did it myself. Remember that opening line? No, Where I don't. The... Oh, the guy, the, 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 the uh, museum curator is showing a suit of armour to the people. A uh, tourist group going through the museum. And there's a neat hole exactly in front of where the heart would be in the breastplate. He's trying to, the, the curator's trying to come up with some logical medieval explanation of how an Arthurian, you know, suit of armour has a, has a 38 calibre hole in him. <laughs> and this guy in the background, this real old man, says, Witchy well, I saw it done. Witchy well, I did it myself. Ah. He shot the guy. <laughs> he was the Connecticut Yankee. Yeah, exactly. Returned, I'd forgotten that. Yes. Yeah. Um, what's next after this? Oh, so you're going to, it's a year or two finishing this film up. There'll be another year anyway. We're, yeah. we're, it, this film is due to release, I think, on the 10th of December 2010. So okay. we've got another 12 months and a bit. Okay. Yeah. Have you got the next one? In well, we, we, we've certainly, I mean, if the public support this one sufficiently, we will make the next one and it'll did go they, on. Did they support the last one? Well, uh, 450 million at the box office okay. isn't bad, you know. Yeah, okay. Was that enough? Uh, to like it's a blockbuster, let's face it, it's yeah, huge. That, um, that was enough to justify this one, yeah, being made. Yeah. Right. And the first one was even better. But. Um, so if you get the same support again... Yeah, before? the same or more, and I, I expect we will get more. I think it, a huge amount with any movie, no matter how good the movie is, no matter how beautiful it is, how well made it is, depends on the marketing. And the last movie, quite frankly, was just not very well marketed. Oh, really? Um, it was released at the wrong time, and it was marketed badly, and there were, there were things that should have been done differently. That's my view, anyway. Um, and I think we'd have done an awful lot better if we'd released it at Christmas, as I wanted to do in the first place. But anyway, the powers that be in, in, the, in the distributor house decided they'd do it their way, and they, I guess they messed up. Mm. But that's my, my opinion. But um, Is the next one uh, scripted yet? Oh, no, no, we haven't got that. So we haven't even decided exactly which one to do yet. Oh. There are several reasons um, why we would go with the silver chair, but then there are other reasons why we might go with something else instead. Uh, one of the reasons with silver chair, I, I would like at the moment, I'm voting for, for going with silver chair, but... One of the reasons is that we have found an absolutely fabulous young actor to play Eustace. He's a complete natural. He's, he's just a, a brilliant... He's a very, very nice young lad. He fits in perfectly with, the other, with, with uh, Skander and uh, Lucy and, and Ben, uh, who play in reverse order Caspian. Jo- uh, sorry. Ben is... <laughs> I got it all confused. It's very difficult to separate the names of the actors from the names of the character. King Caspian now is played by Ben Barnes. And Lucy is played by Georgie Henley, as always. And uh, Edmund, as always, by Scander Keynes. And those three, and Ben, and, uh, sorry, those three, and Will, the new Will, who is Will um, Poulter, who plays Eustace, 
they all just gel together very well. It's a, it's a great sort of family environment. And uh, this kid, Will, is a superb young man, great guy, and also a very fine little actor. So the problem with this is we, if we didn't do Silver Chair next, if we went on to something else, you might have three or four years before you get back to do the Silver Chair. Now, Eustace just follows on from this movie into the next one, if it's Silver Chair. Uh, and um, young lads have the unfortunate habit of suddenly growing up. Yes. So he could be eight inches taller and shaving three times a day before we get back to that movie. That's right. And this is the problem so, with child actors. For, exactly. Forever. Exactly. So, you know, I'd kind of, I, that's, that's a pretty strong incentive because he is so good to want to go on and mm. do Silver Chair next with Eustace as the hero rather than the villain, mm. which would be kind of fun. So this is your life these days, making these movies? It's a large part of it. Mm. Yeah, it's a large part of What's it. What's the other part? Well, I'm still running the C.S. Lewis Company as well in terms of creative and artistic in- input. Oh, OK. Um, and of course, that, that'd I s- pretty well run itself, though, wouldn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, every every new book jacket has to be examined, the design has to be criticised and checked and make sure everything's right. And, I mean, we, we're constantly re-jacketing, re-publishing re, uh, things, getting together new anthologies and so on. So there's always a, quite a lot of work to be done in that area. And how do you do that when you're living on the other side of the planet? Well, I do it by internet, of course, by email. Uh, most of my work is done by email now. But also, I do. I still do quite a lot of um, public appearances. I, I preach and teach in various parts of the world and so forth. So I'm uh, preach and uh, teach what? Well, I preach Christianity and 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 teach the nature of C.S. Lewis as a man rather than as a scholar or a, or a writer or whatever else. There are lots of people who know all about C.S. Lewis's work. Well, not all about, but lots of people who know a lot about C.S. Lewis's work. Uh, there are a lot of people who write interpretive analyses of his work and so on. But the only living human being who really knew Jack well is me. Right. Uh, we're a dying breed, and when I go, there won't be anybody. So is there something to be learnt from the man himself? I think so. What's that? A great deal. Well, partly the way he exercised his Christian faith, which is much, he was much better at it than I am, I, I freely confess. And how, just how he behaved in general life and, and the way he went through things. I, just, it, it's, I broke the, the, the book, as I said, Jack's Life for, for young people, because I think the way he lived was important for people to recognise um, not not because it has any bearing necessarily on his writings, but because it's, he was a valuable man. He was a valuable man by the, because of the way he lived, more than what he wrote even. Uh, but uh, most of that gets lost in the films and books and so forth written about him. Yeah, the uh, the output of the man is what people know him by rather yes. than the man himself. That's but what there, unfortunately there have been some fictional... I mean, Shadowlands, for example, though a wonderful film, is largely fictional. And it doesn't portray Jack as he really was at all. So people have got this misapprehension about what Jack was all about as a man from Tony Hopkins' brilliant portrayal of the character he found in the screenplay, which Bill Nicholson wrote very well, but it wasn't the C.S. Lewis that, or the Jack that everybody knew and loved. So I think that putting that image right is, is fairly important. How do you do that? Like you said, go to lectures? And... I, I, I lecture about Jack, and I'm often, several times I've done, which I actually like quite a joy, I've done an on-stage live interview where an individual will sit down with me on a stage, and we're both mic'd up, and there'll be an audience of, I don't know, four or five hundred, maybe a thousand people. And the interviewer will start asking me questions he wants to know the answers to, and he feels that the audience will want to know the answers mm-hmm. to. And then we do a Q&A period after that. And that's an exciting way, because you have to think on your feet all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. An exciting way of, of, of presenting Jack as a man, as he really was. Mm. How old was he when he died? He was 65 when he died. That's not that old. No, it's not old at all. He, he, he could have lived quite considerably longer, I think, probably, had he had a better doctor. And had he wanted to. I think it's probably safe to say that after my mother's death, Jack's life was really an exercise in patience and obedience. Oh. More than anything else. He'd written all he wanted to write, and he, or he felt that the Lord wanted him to write. And he'd, uh, he'd lived the life, as much life as he felt that, that the Lord wanted him to live. He was quite ready to go when he went. At 65? Yeah. In fact, he was disappointed. He went into a coma at one stage. And when he recovered from it, he felt disappointed that he had to come back. Wow. Which was quite interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It just shows how ready he was to go. Absolutely. He said afterwards, now I know how Lazarus must have felt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose so. Yeah. I think there are a couple of things I'd like to tell anybody in the world, and everybody in the world, and that is when you go through life, do not look for things you want to believe in. Search for truth. Truth will take you to, The search for truth will take you into some strange places, down some strange roads, but in the end, if you follow it assiduously enough for long enough, it will lead you to truth, and that will guide your life successfully from there on. So it's the search for the truth. That's search the... for truth is very important in every individual's life. 
You're not, you're not actually saying about truth. You're actually saying the search for it. The process. No, no. The of truth itself is what you find at the end of it. Yes, but the journey uh, the there. Search, the, the important thing to do. People. What happens? People get distracted. And what I'd like to believe is, or oh, that looks nice. This honky religion over here, or whatever it is, that looks fun. Uh, I'd like to believe in that. Or I'd like to be a scientist. Or I'd like this. Or I'd like that. But all of these things pale into complete insignificance if you search for truth itself. The end goal being to find the truth about why we're here, who we are, what it's all about. If you keep looking for things to believe... Oh, actually, G.K. Chesterton put it beautifully. He said, people who don't believe in God don't believe in nothing. They'll believe in anything. Some people, those people that I know, would um, say that they just want to see proof. Yeah, you find proof if you keep seeking, seeking truth. If you search for truth, you will find the proof. And it may be a very personal proof, and it may be a very, very moving experience. It can be a horrendous experience sometimes, suddenly re realizing the truth. But, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I love that the, um, Richard Carlton did an interview once with uh, Shirley MacLaine. And you know who Shirley MacLaine is, yes. and she does all this yes. channeling of yes, ancient yes, yes, people yes. and all this <laughs> weird stuff. I may have seen the interview. Anyway, uh, in the end of it, he finally turned to Shirley and said, Shirley, tell me, isn't there anything you don't believe? Because she'll believe anything. Anything anybody tells her with enough conviction, she will believe. Apparently, mm. it seems. So, I mean, it, this is the trap one falls into. One says, well, I don't want to believe in all that God stuff unless I have proof. You can't even prove you exist. You can't prove that we exist in this room talking with each other. There's no proof of that. There's simply assumption based on assumption based on assumption. And so it goes. So if you're looking for proof that God exists, there are two ways you can come at this, this problem. Look around. Either he exists or nothing does. Or give up the idea of proof. If we could prove God existed, he wouldn't be God. If he's subject to our proofs or subject to anything in our intellects, he's not God. Omnipotent. Well, if he's subject to our proofs, we're the omnipotent ones and he's the servant. So he's not God. That's right. That's my point. Yeah, and, he, yeah. and being omnipotent, he defies our conception. Complete, complete, uh, defies our understanding. Yeah. We muddle along trying to see through a glass darkly, as the Bible puts it, a dark smoked glass. We can't see things clearly yet. Where is this species called human going? What do you, well, what, I mean, what, do you what do you th what do you think? <laughs> you know, like if you could, if you could. I have a horrible gift of prophecy, which is kind of scary. Okay, well, go times. for it. No, I, I'm really interested to you know you've been around a good length of time and you've seen a fair bit. By the looks of it, been around the world more times than I can remember. Where, where, I, I think that humanity is heading for an almighty crash. Um, and how do you think we would avoid that? You know, that, there are two separate questions there. Yeah. I think there are lots of things. It's, it's, we can avoid it basically by getting back to the truth to some extent, getting back to the fact that one of the biggest problems Western society suffers from is that we have all forgotten the word, the meaning of the word enough. None of us want to have enough. We all want to have more than the next guy. And that's not a good idea. Enough, sufficiency is everything a man needs. There are people in the world, lots of parts of the world, for whom sufficiency is just having three meals a day, and they're not even very good meals, and somewhere dry to sleep at night. That's closer to reality than what we have in our Western societies. You're seeing a huge economic collapse, which is just starting, by the way. I don't believe we're anywhere near the end of that yet. In the Western society, because everyone has striven to live on credit. Even the banks were living on credit, as has now become suddenly powerfully evident as they collapse all over the world, um, with nothing to back it up. And the American answer to that currently is to print more money. Well, if you have nothing to back that money with, Gresham's Law takes place. This is a law uh, first written out by Sir Thomas Gresham back in the 1500s or 1600s. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure when. Which states that bad money drives out good. If you print money which is worthless, you lower the value of all the money which started out being worth something. And look at the value of the US dollar at the moment. Look at the value of the Zimbabwe, whatever it used to be. I saw a one trill, one hundred trillion dollar Zimbabwean <laughs> note the other day. <laughs> That's what happens. The bad money drives out the good. So you start off with these newly printed trillion-dollar bills, or $100 trillion bills, which are practically worth a loaf of bread, if that. Um, and they immediately lower the value of every other bill that they've ever had, which was at one time worth something. My son James worked it out pretty thoroughly. He said, you know, you can't work through currency exchanges, and you can't think that way if you're travelling a lot. What you have to get down to is how long you have to work to earn a loaf of bread. And it kind of works out, or has worked out in the past, in most places, to be about 20 minutes. Okay. 20 minutes work will buy a loaf of bread. 
Okay, that's interesting. I've never heard that one before. That is the currency you have to work on. How much work do I have to do to get a feed? I've heard another standard throughout all of history is what does a good set of clothes cost? In well, Roman okay. times okay. versus yep. today, they are still proportional About the to same. the same amount of effort. Well, James has discovered no matter where he goes in the world and throughout his life, it's always taken him about 20 minutes to earn a loaf of bread. That's a pretty good standard that's to work a, that's by. That's an interesting measure. I'll have to sit down and contemplate that in different yeah. places I've been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, a lot of places you get a bowl of rice instead of a loaf of bread, but the staple sure. anyway, a yeah. meal of the staple, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, about 20 minutes. Okay. Okay. Now that's pretty and good. I mean, that's a pretty good life well, standard of living. If you can earn a meal in twenty minutes, that's, that's pretty good going. That's right, and and that is a base that is actually based not on a perceived value of a, a very yellow shiny metal or a piece of Any paper. Of it's actually based on something that is tangible and usable. Yep, precisely. I think probably even a yellow shiny metal base is better than no base. I tend to agree with you. you know? <laughs> but but it's still. It's, it doesn't matter what you have. You can put it in a safe, and it has some kind of intrinsic value that you can thereby judge your currency on. Something is yeah. backing up your currency. Yeah. You know, if you just do it, just print the stuff off, uh, your whole civilization, your whole economy collapses. It's happened time and time again. Look at Germany between the two wars. Of Look course. at Italy after the second war. A hundred million lira for a loaf of bread. You know, who cares, man? It's just nonsense. I think a lot of people actually would agree with you in saying that it looks like we're on a, some sort of greased, slippery slope here. Easy reversed. How? What's the, the essence in your mind of how Two things you have to do. You have to go back to work. Never accept a handout for anything. Three things, perhaps, and give up greed. I think most people can deal with most societies could deal with the first two. I think giving up the a greed. Lot is of pe- a lot of people would say that. How many TVs do you have in your house? I don't own a TV. Good for you. Have Magic. A, That's terrific. I haven't owned one for eight years. Good on you. Good on um, you. If you're raising kids, the worst thing you can have in the house is a television set. And the next thing is, of course, a computer. Yeah, well, I must admit, I've, I've got my computer. I have to have a computer yeah. for work, but yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, if I was raising children, they would never be allowed to touch the computer. Right. Greed is a really interesting one. It seems mm. to be ingrained in human society. In human it's a temptation, genome. like all the others. Yeah. You know, there are many temptations. Greed is one of the staples that the devil uses against us. It's, like you said, uh, enough. Enough. I, 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 What's enough in your life? Enough in my life is um, the ability to travel. Why? Because I enjoy seeing different cultures. You're getting a bit greedy there, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> See what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's I'm, such a trap. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, no. we're being particularly picky yeah, no, here, but, 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 you know, it's, it's not but, essential. No, that's right. And if you want to go down to base core essentials, mm. air, shelter, food, and there's not much else. And that's Warmth. it. Shelter and warmth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, 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 yeah. And that's all. all that, you, that's really what you need. That's all the, at the base need. level. And probably select intellectual stimulus without which you go nuts anyway. So probably some kind of intellectual stimulus, books or something. Yeah. Music or whatever it might be. Pick your pick your poison. But then there's the, well, community. Well, how do you get community? You know. Well, you get community yeah, I mean, by giving up greed and, and stop competing. But 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 you can get this incremental increase to a point where. It, becomes excessive of course of course and, and there are lots of people who do just that but again you know it's enough doesn't only mean physical things enough means intellectual stimulus mm. means community relations and so on one of the things that i believe and i have a really really hard time ever convincing people of this because they're not prepared to think long enough about it is that all competition is evil <laughs> I agree with you completely. Do you? Well, that's I've rare. Been, I've been saying it for <laughs> 15, I've been saying it for fifteen, twenty years. And how many people have agreed with you? I normally get huge arguments, Absolutely. But, but generally, if I can have my ten minutes worth, oh, it usually takes me a couple of hours to get really people to really realise what I'm talking about. I started in the, in the playground. Yeah, that's where it's. Yeah, that's it's, where I believe it starts. Well, it starts by the by the parents and teachers teaching the playground. Well, yeah, but you know, but but can I have you run faster than Jimmy. But I have no uh, problems with Doug's. I don't have no problems with sportsmanship. That's very different to well, competition. Well, I, I, no, I still have a problem with even with that because all, there is always somebody hurting at the end of the day. But my ideal uh, Olympic event would be a race from one point to another point in which the object would be for all of the competitors to arrive at the finish line at exactly the same time but in the shortest possible time. So the slow guys so would have ha- to be helped by the fast guys. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, so everybody has to work together everybody to get has there to as quickly to as possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's an yeah. interesting idea. I... I worked with a fellow a few years ago. He was a Kiwi stick fighter. He, mm-hmm. he went to Indonesia doing stick fighting. Violent, violent sport with these yep. bamboo poles beating the, you know, just lying yeah, in like, yeah. He was a champion, absolute mm. champion. He said it was the fairest sport he'd ever been involved in because they would enter the ring and they would 
beat the living daylights out of each other. Yeah. But the moment it finished, they would pick each other up and they would look after each other. Yeah. And it was over. Yeah. It was, it was, sportsmanship at its but ultimate the height. But if you take that back to its origins, right back to when it started, it was never a competitive sport. No, it was it's a training it's, mechanism. That's right, and, and, and it, it was may, training personality and character. Putting points on it and having championships is our Western idea. That's right. That's, that's what right. I, it was. There was never. I mean, the samurai never, heard, never, heard, heard, <laughs> never held sort of sword fighting competition. Well, they'd all be dead if they did. But mm. sword fighting competitions, training exercises, yes. Mm. Uh, all the, the the karate has been infected with our championship mentality. All of these things. Mm. Um, we can learn a lot from other civilizations, but it is the whole idea of competitive sports, for example. I think is completely wrong. Which leads to tribalism, which gladiatorial sports, and when you look at most of the football codes around the world, they are very gladiatorial in their behaviour. Yep. Um, I, I, and what sort of people do they produce? Um, it concerns me more what sort of people watch. Well, that too, but the, when the whole of the gladiatorial contests always produce the wrong sort of people, both on in the on the ring floor mm. and in the in the yes, bleachers right. around them. That's right. You know. And then society as a whole uh, is judgmental if one of those gladiators misbehaves in normal society. How's he to know what is misbehaviour and what isn't? Completely agree with you. He's never yeah, been because, trained in that. Well, yeah, and that's right. He's, yeah. And it's a bit like um, accusing military personnel for misbehaviour when they're trained to be brutal. What, what is what is misbehaviour for a man whose, whose object in life is to, to kill, kill people? That's right. That's right. So if they you can't expect a man to come back from a war and fit straight back into society, it just doesn't happen that way. Let alone when not they're in war, looking after a prison. And yeah, well, that's something. exactly all of those sorts. Yeah, of things. that's right. It's just, it's, but again, again, one of the things that's rather silly about modern warfare and modern attitudes to warfare is the outcry among people when soldiers take casualties. A man who has volunteered, signed up to become a soldier, puts his life on the line for whatever he believes in, whatever it might be. But he knows he might get the job. He's not out there whinging about it. He's doing a job which he believed to be important. And back, meanwhile, back here, people are screaming and yelling because the war is costing casualties. What else is it going to do? What else is war about? The, the idea of war is to kill enough of the enemy until the rest run away. And if you happen to be the enemy, you're going to get enough of you killed till you run away. Mm. That's it, man. Mm. Mm. And, and you only have to read a little bit of war history yeah. to realise that. Yeah. So... Let's put a positive spin on this. <laughs> How do we get out of this? Uh, I, I told you, we give up on greed. Yeah. We relearn the, the essentials of, of, of truth. We seek truth rather than what, what we want to believe in. We cease to be competitive with each other. How do we actually do that, though? Ah, well, that's a little bit beyond me. I'm, I'm just a filmmaker. Okay, how do you do it? How do I do it? How do I you refuse, do it? I, I don't compete. Okay, and how do you do that to impress things upon the greater world to maybe consider this path? Well, for me, it's bringing up my children as Christians, right. which has helped them enormously. And uh, I think they're pretty good guys. You know, my, my three sons particularly are committed Christians. And, and I think you'd find the people amongst whom they live would have a very high regard for them. How do we get out of the mess we're in? First of all, we go back to work. We stop, entirely cut out the welfare state nonsense. This is another thing, people. people you, you've got to help people who don't, you know. person gets pregnant out of wedlock. You've got to give them money to raise the kid. You don't. You're only encouraging you to have another child to get more money. As soon as you start handing out the dole, you convert the human being into a kept animal. That's it. They become farmyard animals from there on, those who receive the dole. There is no dignity. There's no sense of self-respect left anymore. It's a terrible thing to do. To, to, you have to get rid of all of that. The problem is, the huge problem we face, is that to correct, correct this situation is going to cost a lot of agony amongst a lot of people before it gets better. And that's going to happen whether we like it or not, because we're just going to run out of resources. We can't maintain this kind of level of pseudo-economy for very much longer. And I suspect that what's going to happen is that the whole of the Western civilization uh, will collapse, and now most of the Middle East certainly is in, in our Western patterns, and much of the rest of the world, even China's going that way. Uh, we'll all collapse, and we'll go back to an agrarian society for a very long time. Oh, you think it'll be a... Um if you know how to live off the land, you'll survive, and if you don't, you won't. A year zero sort of society. Well, year zero is probably a very bad term because of the way it's been used by, by self-serving politicians in the past, but, uh, or tyrants in the past. But yeah, I suspect that it will crumble. Uh, we rely so heavily on our technology when we have so few people being trained or born even to replace the older people who are running it 
just won't be won't be maintainable anymore. Do you have a um, a home in the bush? I have four of them. Preparing, you know, if if, <laughs> yeah. if this happens. Yeah, four of them. Right. In different parts of the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's not that I'm, I'm not what you might call a survivalist. I don't think we have to hole up in the mountains with huge amounts of ammunition and shoot anybody that comes within range and that kind of nonsense. But I do believe we should all bring our children up knowing how to grow food, knowing how to find food in the forests, knowing how to kill and dress a beast for beef or whatever, uh, kill a kangaroo and dress it out and, and eat it and so on. I think these are skills that are fast disappearing, and we need to get them back. Mm. I, think, I don't think there's any of my sons who couldn't survive in the forest. And, and the girls too, probably, possibly not my youngest daughter who's grown up in Ireland, but she would have a pretty good idea. But the, the boys would, would make it. How to preserve food for the winter or summer, depending on what your climate is. How to bottle food, how to, all that sort of mm. thing. Mm. And now, of course, that we have the huge advantage, if we're, if we're technically minded, of being able to produce electricity out of sunlight and water and air. And if you can produce electricity out of sunlight and air, as in wind and, and, and solar panels, you can then produce water by distilling it out of the atmosphere or condensing it out of the atmosphere. Uh, all of this powered by the sun, but the technology for that exists now. We ought to start developing it far more than we are. So you can have somewhere, for example, an island someplace and set up a photovoltaic system to power it with electricity and set up a wind generation system to power, power it when the sun's not shining and have a, uh, a condenser system to, to get fresh water out of the atmosphere if there's no fresh water on the island. I mean, these things can be done quite easily these days. We just need to learn how to do that. And it's all available there in the literature. It's just a yeah, case of it's embracing books. it. Yeah, it's it's, and it's, it's, it's one of the things that techn- you know, modern science and technology is giving But schools don't teach practicality these days. My stepfather said something very wise once. He said, learning, and I mean real learning, is for free men. Training is for slaves. If you're a trained brain surgeon, you probably can't change a light bulb. But you can do great brain surgery. You're enslaved to that particular special profession for the rest of your life. And that's very much the Industrial Revolution model. Yep. And a lot of people say the education system has got issues because it tends to... Well, I think the education system sucks, quite frankly. Because it trains people Not to just be that. part of the I, mean, I think the whole idea of school is, is completely wrong. As someone who spent 13 years working in post-child abuse trauma therapy as a, as a psychotherapist, the whole concept of school is flawed. The worst thing you can do with a child at any stage of his life, probably up to about 18 years old, is to remove it from his parents. So what do we do? We send the kids off at the age of five and sometimes older or younger, but that sort of era, for eight hours or more a day in the charge of one stranger with 40 of their peers. What the heck are they going to learn in that situation? The answer is very little. Mm. Um, uh, and how to be good little slaves. How to be good little slaves, or how to be bad slaves. Most kids learn more bad things at school than they ever learn good mm. things. The homeschooling revolution that's taken place in America, which is something I was advocating in the States 15, 20 years ago and got howled at for, has just been proven to be the most effective way of educating, educating children ever devised. Because you've got the constant attention, emotional and intellectual attention, of both parents for certain periods of the day. And you're following a set curriculum, which the government will issue you with, or various organizations approved by the government will issue you with, which are very good curricula. And the children who are homeschooled have been shown to top the SAT scores right across America. And look a bit deeper and you find out that the universities are looking into records to find out who was homeschooled for their scholarship programs because they know they'll be self-starting, keen workers and they'll learn fast because that's what they love to do because it's been a good environment for them in the past. So, and even the big companies are looking for people whose record is homeschooling because mm. they know they'll be workers. And I've heard it's not just um, in the US, it's across the board. It's worldwide now, yeah. but I mean, it started in the US. And the reason it started in the US is many of the Christians hated the, the, the ridiculous things people were being taught in school. Yeah. I mean, most sex education in the world, and particularly here in Australia, is just a good example as anywhere, is a terrible thing to do. It's dreadful cruelty and abusive children. Because they don't teach you about sex in terms of what it means and what it is and why it's there and all of the sort of things you need to know and the moral values attached to it. They just teach you how to do it safely or better or whatever. Yeah, it's purely biology, isn't it? They don't purely biology. There's no, there's no morality attached to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sexual morality has been, been neglected and given away, given up on. We need to get that back too. Yeah, there's about five layers to that subject that, oh, yeah. that should go be on, taught. Go yeah. on forever. Yeah, go on forever. yeah. Uh, but this education system only teaches, like I said, the biology. And that's a bad thing. If you screw around enough, you get sick and die. AIDS is killing millions upon millions of people around the world today. And they're all, oh, we won't go into that. There's all sorts of medical mm. stuff that I've researched, which is quite fascinating, but it's a, it's a big subject. Is it movie making for the rest of your days? I have no idea. That's up to the Lord Jesus. Ooh, so how do you live your life in that regard? I get up in the morning wondering what the Lord's going to throw at me, and when he does, I deal with it. And how do you know? What happens? 
Well, if you sit on a fence long enough and nothing happens at all, you know the Lord doesn't want you to do anything. If someone comes along, trips over a brick and falls flat on their face, you go and help them. If somebody gives you a phone call and says, want to have a yarn? Yeah, you say, why not? So you very much live moment by moment, you know, being inspired what, what, by well, what I, turns I, Of course up. you get up in the morning and you think, this is what I've got to do today. Um, but what we have to learn, and it's an important lesson, is that what we plan for the day is our agenda. The interruptions to those plans are God's agenda. Deal with it. That yeah, works for me. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting, when we were running the ministry in Ireland, we had a lot of American and other guests, but quite a few Americans. And Americans always had the same question. Can we please see your mission statement? So we don't have one. Oh, well, what's your vision for your ministry? Don't have one of those either. How does that work? The answer is, it's not up to us to decide what our ministry should be. That's up to the Holy Spirit of God. And this is in complete contradiction with the current business model of plan, goal set, break it down, Look, step by I had step. A case, I, had a, I had a case, and we shall illustrate why. I had a case in England of a young girl. She was, I think, from, from Jamaica. Pretty black girl. Got pregnant outside wedlock. She was studying at a college in England. She was going to abort her child because she couldn't continue her studies and raise a child at the same time, she thought. I said, well, A, you can continue your studies and raise a child. It's not as difficult as you think. You know, we ran a f three farms and several other businesses with five children. So, um, Anyway, we talked at great length, and we, she eventually decided she'd give it a go, and she wouldn't kill the baby. So I then set about trying to find her a place. I lived in Ireland, mind you, not in England. Trying to find her a place where she could rent a room with someone to sort of keep an eye on her while she was pregnant and so on, and then help her a little bit raising the child. I went to the churches, got the same answer from about four churches, and it made me see red. I'm sorry, we don't have a program for that. And I said, you do have a bloody program for it. It's called Christianity. They couldn't get their head around the fact that maybe, just maybe, they could step outside a written-down program of you do this first, then you go to two, yeah. number three, number four, and be Christians which is one reason why I'm not a member of the church, because they think, oh, we don't have a program for that, therefore we don't do it. Eventually, we managed to find this girl somewhere to go, and, and she had the baby, and she, he's the delight of her life. Are you still in contact with her? Occasionally, she'll drop me an email, yeah. That's nice. Hmm. Anything else that you'd like to say to the masses? And this does go international, and I wonder... Yeah, maybe I, I, this absolutely. Go and watch the, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Take all your friends... Take all your friends' friends. Take your enemies. You're supposed to love them too. Take your enemies' friends. Have a great time. I think you'll enjoy it. It's an amazing uh, amount of work that we've put into this, and I just That's... love what we've done. And if the story is as good as the work and the passion that we put into it, I hope... I think the story in the book is better, but it's still a great story. I don't know the story. Um, so. You should have read it. You should, have, you should read it. You should read all the Narnian Chronicles. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a great movie, I think. It's a fabulous movie. But it's, it's kind of interesting that the, nobody outside of this industry has any idea of the amount of work and it, effort that goes into putting it is extraordinary together. isn't it i mean it's like running a fairly major military operation yeah. our, our um, payroll here i think at one stage or our security list here at uh, the gate at one stage and that's just in this unit exceeded 500 people right 500 people on the lot on the lot um, people don't understand. We have to have people who clean the toilets. We have to have people who run the generators. We have to have mechanics. We have to have drivers. We have to have cooks. We have to have waiters and so on. Yeah. Huge numbers of people people never even think about. Offshore, the whole list probably works out around 2,500 people who work on this one movie yeah. at some stage. Well, you see it rolling past in the credits at the yeah. end of these films if they put everybody up. Yeah, they, they, they don't, of course, but they put companies up that I represent think, maybe two dozen people. Well, I think the Matrix films which I worked on was the last time I saw the full credits run, and I timed it, and it was 12 minutes yeah, that's, just to run the credits. Yeah, it was too long. You, you can't really do that on too many movies no. because people just don't sit there and watch it anyway. No, that's right. but, but the credits are important not for the audience. The credits are important for people like me who want to know who does this work on that film because wow look at that lighting that's fantastic okay who was the chief grip on that and who was the lighting director and so on the director of photography you know i've worked Doug, in the industry and outside of the industry mm -hmm. in within my skill base and i noticed that the people in the industry tend to be of a higher caliber than the same skill base outside of the industry Again, it comes back to pushing the envelope of technology all the time. You're always looking for better ways to do things. You're always looking for a better way to do the electrics, a better way to do this. It's always pushing further and further ahead. So I think you're going to find the top people in this. In yeah, this. And, and they seem to be brighter. Enthusiastic. Technically better. Yeah, yeah enthusiastic. They work hard. So, yeah, I mean, people, people work people. all night here sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah. All right, so they get the overtime pay, but that's not why they do it. They do it because they're fascinated with the project. They're loving working on this particular movie. They're loving working on movies in general. And they love their work. Mm. 
I don't think there's anybody who comes to work here in the morning not looking forward to the day. It can get exhausting, though. Well, of course it gets that's, exhausting. That's the by, the end, by the end of this shoot, in another four or five weeks, we'll all be exhausted, yeah. and so we should be. Yeah. Doug, thanks very much for coming on your story. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's fun. Thank you.